0: It's Wednesday, February 21st, 2024, and I'm Dave Sobel, and welcome to the Business of Tech Lounge. The idea here, we're doing a show live once a week now, every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, designed to give you an opportunity to ask questions of guests, have guests on in real time, and dive into some of the stories a little bit deeper. My idea, the format's going to be a little bit looser, not necessarily everything is quite as tight, but it gives you the opportunity to be interactive. There's going to be an options for guests and questions, and we're going to be having conversations with anybody in the chat that is on while we're doing these lives. So feel free to put something into the comment section and let us know so we can respond to your questions as we go. I'm going to start out with our top story today. The top story is from Cyber Daily. Now, while the headline is about MSP versus MSSP, there's something embedded in the story that I wanted to discuss a little bit further. Let me quote the detail. Quote, Accenture was contacted by Starwood in 2009 to provide IT support services, including, quote, development, testing, maintenance, and running of the applications. It continued to provide the services after the acquisition by Marriott. According to the judgment in the case, Accenture identifies and analyzes suspicious activity and creates security alerts directed to the information risk and security incident management team. The court's finding was that by virtue of providing these IT services, including Accenture's role in monitoring the security tool that should have, and eventually did, identified the suspicious activity, Accenture owed a duty of care to Starwood and Marriott's guests. That duty of care was to protect the personal information of end users defined to include guests and customers of Starwood, and that to fulfill this duty, it had an obligation to use nothing less than a reasonable standard of care. Therefore, the impacted guests can bring a case in negligence against Accenture. It doesn't matter that the guests and customers had no contractual nexus, that is, no written contract with Accenture. This is a court case between Accenture and Marriott-Starwood over a breach. Now, why do we care? A violation caused, a breach caused in this scenario where customer data was released isn't just a breach of contract here. It isn't a breach of contract, but in fact, they focused on negligence. And the idea is not only the MSSP have responsibility to the hotel chain, it had it to the customers too. That's why I noticed because the idea that the obligation extends all the way through on that security requirement to end customers is pretty key. That's something that I think oftentimes gets missed. And we have a court case now here that explicitly focuses on that responsibility. I think this has massive implications for the way services are delivered and something that we're going to want to see go for track going forward as we think about the precedents here. So that was my top story. There's a case that was found where the ruling was in favor of the, the negligence, and it determined that the responsibility goes all the way through to the end user. My second story that I wanted to cover today, VDI for the Navy. The Department of Navy, uh, uh, the Navy has expanded its virtual desktop interface to 110,000 users from 25,000 previously in response To the Invanti VPN vulnerability. The move to VDI provides more secure capabilities and allows for the use of personal devices. The Navy's broader move to zero trust includes a shift away from the risk management framework and towards continuous monitoring and ongoing risk assessments. The Cyber Ready initiative focuses on incorporating cybersecurity capabilities into every phase of the ecosystem. And not only did the Navy start looking at this, this is on the heels of NerdioCon last week. Nerdio doubled its annual revenue due to customer growth, product innovation, and partner expansion. The company showcased significant product developments at its NerdioCon event, including AI integration, predictive infrastructure management, and unified application delivery. Nerdio has also focused on strengthening their partner initiatives and plans to double its headcount to meet customer demands. The company not only added artificial intelligence capabilities to a product, it also introduced a community forum for knowledge sharing among partners. The company aims to increase partner profitability and plans to incorporate genitive AI assistance for various tasks. Nerdio has also doubled that annual recurring revenue through partner expansion and customer growth. The updated Nerdio Enterprise Partner Program now includes a deal protection system. And the program is designed to to provide partners with increased security and confidence in their deals. Now, why do we care? One of my hopes for this format for doing live and with an audience is to be a bit looser and explore a topic that may not be as fully formed in my brain and the way I'm thinking about it. VDI is one of those areas. Naturally, I think instinctually that VDI and streaming applications are going to be delivered by more mature, larger solution providers, generally also to larger customers, such as the Navy. But I want to know if this is an area that may be expanding further than I'd have initially thought. Is this a space that may result in more SMB clients thinking about it? I've oftentimes talked on the show about my interest in areas like Xbox gaming and how that might work out from a small business perspective, Microsoft's ability to deliver specific applications in a streaming form. This makes a ton of sense to me security-wise, and I'm asking the audience, am I right? Is this happening more in SMB, or is this only happening at that mid-market and enterprise level. I think that's why we care because there's an opportunity here for a little bit more. Those are our top stories today. Moving on, I wanna actually address a question that's been on my mind. Jay McBain posted some data on LinkedIn about the opportunities in and around service providers. In particular, they talked about the opportunity for AI and compared that against the cybersecurity offerings available. Let's go back to two specific stories from the business of tech to get a little bit more insight of what was covered. According to a report by Canalis, generative AI will be a $158.6 billion opportunity the channel ecosystem by 2028, with $15.4 billion expected this year alone. The report highlights AI services and AI software development as the two largest revenue opportunities for the channel ecosystem, with other opportunities including advanced data services and reselling, co-selling, and upselling AI products with services. Jay McBain from Canalas believes the opportunities for GSIs or ISVs far surpasses the near-term opportunities for MSPs or VARs And the biggest risk for generative AI is that it never becomes a product at all. MSPs may be better suited to invest more in security skills and practices over that time frame. The winners in generative AI will become big tech infrastructure consumption, a few hardware components, and a smattering of implementation and integration services on the customer side. Channel partners must prepare by determining their AI strategy and offerings, building expertise in strategic AI partnerships, and investing in ongoing development. DNH Distributing has launched the Go Big AI program, which is aimed at helping MSPs and VARs effectively engage with AI solutions. The program provides training, resources, and consultative initiatives, including courses, Workshops, sales enablement tools, and collaborations with leading technology entities. DNH aims to position its partners at the forefront of the AI transformation in the IT channel. Now I picked the DNH story here because I am very MSP focused, but they're not the only vendor that's gearing up in this way. so let's discuss. To do so, let's bring on the Chief Analyst for Channels, Partnerships, and Ecosystems for Canalist, Jay McBain to the show. Jay, thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you
1: so much for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Jay, help me square this circle. On one hand, AI seems like it's a big thing and vendors are leaning into it as an opportunity, particularly for this year. But your data and the analysis was focused on the fact that it may not move as fast and cybersecurity may be a better choice for most. Help me square this circle.
1: Yeah, so to be clear, it's a $158 billion opportunity uh, in the next five years, it's it's a fast growing fifty nine percent compounded growth. So any partner out there is thinking, you know, I want to get on the front end of this opportunity. But in this particular case, as with other emerging tech, it rolls out in phases. You know, if you look today at where we are, you know, last March generative AI became a, a consumer trend, which became a commercial trend very quickly, but. Most companies are right now in the consulting design architecture phase. They're not actually training or tuning large language models. They're not beefing up their uh, their hybrid and, and cloud and edge technology to go do it. And we're in that phase for you know, the next 18 months. You had a story about Nerdio at the beginning. There's a perfect example where an ISV of Microsoft, actually, they were up for Microsoft's top ISV of the year, two years in a row, finalist. So talk about an ISV that's going all in. The same story of ConnectWise and and Datto, Kaseya, the same story to Enable and Ninja, who just raised a bunch of money to go do this. The same story everywhere. ISVs are building this in as features, not additional products, but actual making their software better. Those are the two camps, the system integrators and the ISVs Then in the first 18 months are going to see the biggest part of this growth. And the second part of it was, you know, let's look at other double digit growing parts of our industry, our five trillion dollar industry managed services continues to grow now over half a trillion dollars growing by double digits security now growing to, you know, three hundred and sixty billion dollars in size in the next few years. Again, growing by double digits, I'd want to be focusing on where I can have the most success in the time that I can have that success. And I'll wait for the points where I can come in and start addressing this opportunity.
0: Now, top of mind for me feels like exactly what you just hit on was those consultative opportunities that feel like they're happening right now for for the next 18 months. It feels like a real area of opportunity is both in helping customers with their frameworks, their ethical considerations, and then secondarily, making sure their data is in a good state to be consumed by AI, which has a natural extension also to cybersecurity. Give me a sense of like the tactical activities and things that they should be asking customers right now that seem most relevant in that 18 month window.
1: Yeah, and there's a direct relation here to the size of business that you're serving. You know, you started off by talking about the federal government. We talk about big banks, big pharmaceutical companies. If you take the Fortune 500 or Fortune 2000 and work kind of downwards into mid-market, that's where the conversation is now. Companies that are looking to become platform companies, companies that are serving at that scale and that and that size, I will say as you get down into SMB, a one to nine or a 10 to 24 employee size, or even you know, upwards from there, 49 or 99 employees, are going to see generative AI in the products they use, in the platforms they use. That's why I mentioned for MSPs, they're gonna see Gen AI for the first time in the PSA and RMM and stuff they use, they're not tuning their own models. They're not building their own data lakes at this point. Why did the CEO of Snowflake and and Datadog come into that ninja round a couple of weeks ago? Well, they see this 7 million endpoints and they see the data lake that can happen within the tools we use, not building out our own data lake and not training our own language models. So there's a direct correlation to size of customer and obviously size of partner that is serving that customer that is a little bit different than other emerging tech conversations we've had in the past.
0: Now, we've got Microsoft leaning in very heavily into this space with their co-pilot initiative. That feels pretty broad, particularly as they've got an offering at nearly every level. What's your take on solution provider readiness and capacity and, and need to deliver here? Like how much is this a, a great opportunity or is this something to be cautious about?
1: So I mean if you look at copilot, you know, today, which appears to be like a product, you know, one of our predictions is that in within a couple of years, that product will actually just become a feature and, and there won't be an extra cost for either copilot Microsoft or Einstein GPT at Salesforce, whatever tools you're using in your business, those are going to become part of the basic tool set, kind of like there's analytics today and there's security built in, and there's a whole set of a hundred other things built in. It's going to be built in. It's not going to cost you another $5 a month to get that capability because it's going to be ubiquitous, not only at Microsoft and and the biggest of companies, but right across the 200,000 SaaS companies that are out there today. So first and foremost, How does a partner then go and uh, monetize a feature? You know, is there education and training you can deliver to your client on how better to use Copilot within the business they run? There is. Is there an ability to go put in new servers and new networking gear and go manage a bigger edge environment or build out new hybrid cloud environment? There really isn't. It's a feature. It's a new button in the product you already have. So, yes, there is opportunities, but. You know, if, if you're thinking this is going to be the big 10 or $50 million opportunity that's going to break your company uh, into the next level, in the next couple of years, as we see it, it's more of a feature inter- integration than it is something new.
0: Interesting. Well, that definitely gives us a lot of opportunity for training and, and implementation with customers. Jay, this has been fascinating. Really appreciate you uh, joining me today. Absolutely. So next up, I want to revisit something. I've launched an interview with TJ Carwall just recently. And if you missed it, here's a sample. So let's start with kind of the headline here. You've launched Friday
2: AI. Tell me kind of what it is and how we got there. You know, we, had, we started a managed services provider called Cluster Networks, 2014. Uh, had a great trajectory in the retail space. We, we grew really quickly. And what I mean by that, we were by the 24 month point of us being in business, we were supporting several thousand locations around the U.S. And, uh, you know, we came to this crossroads, especially with the the big growth we had earlier was how do we scale? You know, being in San Francisco is very much this idea of having uh, support engineers on standby to service all the new business that was coming in as a managed services company. And so, um, you know, rather than us look externally for support engineers, we actually looked internally and innovated, and we built something that we codenamed as Friday AI, and uh, it was actually just called Friday. And um, yeah, long story short, you know, it allows us to scale ultimately to several thousand locations or across a huge footprint, which is the national U.S. And uh, we were ultimately managing that footprint with a matter of three guys, and that was because Friday AI was doing most of the heavy lifting for us and enabled us to do that. So practically, like. I mean, how does it work? What, what, is, what does Freddy <laughs> AI do? Well, ultimately, we have an appliance that we plug in on-premise uh, that can, takes all of the management aspects and learns your environment. And uh, without getting too technical, we can certainly go deeper, but it sets a baseline of normalcy. What are all my devices? How are they communicating in my environment? Um, you know, which maybe destinations are they speaking to out in the internet and in the wild? Once it understands the environment, it basically goes into supporting it. And if it sees any anomalies in your environment, like a device failing or a POS terminal not able to process transactions where it used to, uh, Friday jumps in and it either, one, creates a support ticket, ultimately identifies what's the problem, when it happened, ultimately the root cause of the problem and you know creates a support ticket, sends it in. But it can also do something that we've been actually really excited about in the, from the beginning, It takes the actionable next steps to resolve the problem itself. And it does that by either maybe making a configuration on the fly, Uh, maybe it does it by power cycling a device, maybe shutting off an upstream switch port, things of that, that kind of nature. Yeah.
0: I'm super intrigued with what TJ and his team are up to, and I wanted to give you a little bit of insight into why I care on this one. It's positioned kind of as an RMM competitor without being a remote monitoring and management solution fully. And in fact, my real takeaway was it felt like AI at a level I wasn't seeing from the other players. Jay referenced the fact that lots of companies are building in AI technologies like ConnectWise, like Enable, like like Ninja into their products, but I didn't feel like they were taking it quite as far as the Friday system was. And that intrigued me because it was very much billed as learning and responsive itself. If you dig into the interview, which I encourage you to do, TJ goes through the investments they've done over the past number of years and how they've built out that solution. But the other thing that he really brought up was that it's a bootstrapped company. They have no external investors. Can they survive in a competitive world where large players have very large sums of money? And again, as Jay just referenced, Ninja just took a very large Series C investment. This is going to be a really interesting space to watch as new injection of features happens in the space. And I really did want to call it out. This is Interactive. We're taking comments as we go. And I want to throw up one from William, who was very much focused on the earlier conversation and said, as more apps move to the cloud, he thinks we'll see more MSPs leverage VDI and DAS for their clients that have custom applications, hybrid deployments for a small group of users, and for natural deployments like call centers and retails or even require even stronger security controls on endpoints and apps. William, I think you're right. That's one interesting where I think you will be able to get more specialized with it. And I look forward to hearing more. There'll be more time for questions at the end. If you've got them, please make sure to submit them. We're going to be taking questions at the end of the show. Now, another story I wanted to revisit was some vendor programs. In fact, there's been some real noise around what's going on in vendor programs. And let's revisit some of the stories that I covered in the business of tech. I wasn't aware of the shifts over at VMware since the Broadcom acquisition. So I'm noting an article in Channel Futures. Broadcom's acquisition of VMware has left many VMware partners stranded as Broadcom turns its back on them. Smaller companies are supporting these partners and providing safety nets for the channel and end users. The remaining partners who generate less than $500,000 in annual VMware revenue may not receive invitations to join the Broadcom Advantage Partner Program. This move by Broadcom to focus on its top 2,000 customers and cut off smaller partners has created turmoil in the channel. Rival vendors are now stepping in to rescue VMware partners, offering alternative solutions to replace the VMware stack. Let's talk about a bit of more product news and start with some product chaos. ArcServe, a storage and data protection software developer, has abruptly ended sales of its ArcServe cloud services and ArcServe OneSafe solo offerings, leaving MSPs scrambling to find replacements. From CRN, the decision to terminate these technologies aligns with the company's support policy and cloud services terms and conditions. ArcServe plans to invest in innovative solutions to better service partners and customers. MSPs are expressing frustration and disappointment with the sudden exit from the cloud services business as they now had to migrate their customers to other cloud providers. This is one that made me think. And in fact, I realized I didn't exactly have all the expertise needed. Now I've run some vendor programs myself, but I really wanted to talk to somebody who's given this a lot of thought. So I pulled in an expert for this segment. I hope I continue to do this over the course of the live shows. And I went to my my co-host on Killing It, who focuses his time on helping vendors build their channel programs. Let's hear from Ryan Morris, Principal consultant at Morris Management Partners on why a vendor might make this change and what solution providers can do about it.
3: A lot of recent headlines have brought us news about vendors who've been making some significant changes to their channel programs and go-to-market strategies, including cancelling partner contracts, changing the terms and conditions, or significantly increasing the expectations in order to qualify for benefits in those programs. The question is, why are these announcements happening and what should actual solution providers do about this to protect their own business interests? In order to address this, we need to actually begin with a question at the foundation of go-to-market strategies. Why do vendors actually have indirect channel programs? Not because they are inherently better or the correct way to go to market. It's a question of being able to achieve three basic business objectives. Number one, market coverage. Number two, value-added services for implementation and integration transaction services, and so on, and number three, aftermarket support and staying power with the install base. Vendors only choose indirect channel programs in their go-to-market strategy when and if a channel can achieve those three things more effectively at a variable cost model. The reason that this is so important is that variable cost is the actual heart of the question. A variable cost model allows a vendor to achieve more scale than they could possibly afford to sustain in a direct or a fixed cost model. We can get bigger faster, but scale is only one of the questions that we're dealing with in go to market strategy. The other is return on investment. And in order to achieve that, we actually have to do two very important things. Number one is participation or the percentage of overall partners in the program who actively produce revenue. And the second is productivity, which is a calculation of the average amount of revenue or value that's generated by a partner who is actively producing. When you think about it, every vendor has an active incentive to manage both of those objectives by either reducing the number of partners in their program or significantly increasing the expectations of partners who stay in the program. But the question is, how did they go about implementing these strategies? And is there a way where you can increase participation and increase productivity without alienating your current or future partners? In an academic sense, these were the right decisions for a vendor to make to build a more profitable operation, which means many more vendors are going to adopt these very same strategies. So what will you do about it? As a solution provider, there are two things that you really need to be paying attention to to make sure you're looking out for your own interests while vendors are looking out for theirs. Number one, diversify your portfolio. While still managing the complexity of your own go to market strategy and business operations. And number two, actively assess your existing vendors, partner programs, and go to market strategies, and prefer to work with vendors who prefer to support you.
0: Great advice. I appreciated Ryan giving me a little bit of insight. And continuing it, we're going to be asking questions, but I want to get one from a comment already from William just on this exact space. The, he, William says, the MSP and vendor relationship is built on a strong foundation of trust and communication. Canceling a key product that MSPs have built complex deployments of and services on top of is always a headline event. Yep, that it is. And we'll be here to cover them and comment on them and answer your questions. One of those questions that I've been thinking about also is where can we go with this? You know, what do you need more of? And so I'll encourage you, if you're watching this later, make sure that you send in your questions to question at mspradio.com. We'll be handling those every Wednesday on the live show and You can catch these in the podcast feed on Saturdays. So we'll be dropping these live shows into the podcast feed. William, thanks for following up again. Ryan is right. Diversify vendors and monitor those vendors closely. You're going to want to make sure that you're spending your time thinking about this area and giving the right investments. I really am looking forward to more of these opportunities to have discussions with all of you online as we go forward with these live shows. We're going to continue taking questions. Now I want one more thing before we end the day today. I want to give you a preview of the episode and interview that's going to drop this weekend on the podcast feed as well as on YouTube. I actually heard from an end user, Tom Kehu, who's an IT manager at a customer, reached out to me and specifically wanted to be on the show and he wanted to tell his story. Let's get a preview of that interview. So Tom, this could be a little unusual because it's not often that end customers of managed services providers reach out to me saying, hey, I want to talk to you. So in a way, let's start with the real basic. Like, why'd you reach out to want to be on the business of
4: tech? I wonder if Dave or, or the show had many people asking them from the opposite point of view, not from the MSP point of view, but from the customer who receives services from an MSP. And we do that here. We had a, Bumpy road, I'll be honest with you, to get there. But now we're very comfortable in what's their role, what's our role. And I think a lot of the time, some a lot of these issues could have been resolved much earlier due to uh, communication and definitions of knowing what's my role, what's their role. And, you know, uh, a sort of big brother with an arm on the shoulder to say, I got you in this area. But why don't you tell me the story then? So tell me about, like,
0: you know, was it a first time MSP, like how you got engaged? Tell me how it started and,
4: and then the story. We had an MSP as. Since 2011. Now, since 2011, uh, I don't know the era of the MSP and things like that, but our center really grew, and we had just a break fixed IT person at that time, so he needed a little bit of reinforcements. You know, the typical sales of of MSP and why they're important and why they're valuable. Um, Handle things on the back end, so they could be there for our residents. We are a long term skilled care facility for those with physical and mental disabilities. We promote independence, so. The layman's term is, you know, think of a nursing home, except people with intellectual and physical disabilities that, that live there. So not just the elderly. And we promote, like I said, we promote independence. So a lot of these people have, you know, they're in their bedrooms. They have their Xbox or they have their, you know, iPad, you know, a tablet surface, computer, this, that, and the other thing. You know, families want to Skype in with them. So, so our focus is more on the, the resident side and we need somebody on the back end. So that's where that had come in and why they needed it. We used a company, small, small company out of Newark, Delaware, and they were local. So I can imagine, I wasn't here at the time, but I can imagine they probably did a Google search and found MSPs near me, right? That's what they searched for. And uh, they found a local one. They, it was very important for them to be local because, you know, with uh, networks, which management, you know, the firewall servers, what have you, they really wanted someone to be on site and a lower or a less popular MSP would suffice in that realm because it was more, I know the person and not a 1-800-number. So, so back then, that was the general consensus of where that happened. Flash forward um, eight or so years, in 2019, 2020, that small MSP was bought out by a nationwide out of Plano, Texas.
0: Tom's gives a lot of really fascinating insights into the way a customer thinks. I encourage you to catch that episode this weekend on the podcast feed. I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you. My Patreon supporters have that already. They get videos early when those come out, and you can support the show directly. If you visit patreon.com slash MSP radio, you'll get access to those videos early, including this one, that one, which is already available on the feed. I look forward to further episodes. We'll be doing the Business of Tech Lounge every Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern, and we'll take questions ahead of time. If you send in your question as a voice memo or as a video, we'll play it here on the show and answer live. You can send those in at question at mspradio.com. Really appreciate you joining me today at the Business of Tech Lounge, and we will talk to you again next time.